Hey, good morning, everyone. Thanks for joining us for worship today. Um, my name's Gregor, and we're going to be looking at Psalm 69 today. So um, towards that, um, let's read the psalm. Um, I'll lead you in that. Um, there should be a Bible in the seat in front of you, or you can always Google Psalm 69. And I hope the text will magically appear behind me, too. Um, and there's always uh, good resources like Bible Gateway online. So, if everyone's ready, we can uh, read the psalm. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Psalm 69. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal, must I now restore? O oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I am the talk of those who sit in the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord. At an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good according to your abundant mercy. Turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul. Redeem me. Ransom me because of my enemies. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Let their own table before them become a snare, and when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see, and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them, and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. For they persecute him whom you have struck down, and they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. But I am afflicted with pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hoofs. Let, when the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah. 
and people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. We may not be seated. All right. Fantastic job, Gregor. Thank you very much. Well, as you can see, this psalm that we'll be considering together today is intense, full of emotion and passion and even harsh words. This is the word of the Lord. Why does he give us this? We'll look at that today. Would you pray with me as we enter into our time of teaching? Father God, we thank you for this chance, just like every week, to gather together and to study your word, to be in community, to not be isolated and alone as we speak, seek to navigate this world and these floodwaters that we all experience in different ways, God. Would you just be near to us now? We pray that you'd be near to us as we come near to your word. We find you, God, in your word. We need you, God. Without you, we are but dust returning to dust. Give life to our bones. Give relief to our thirst, God. We need you. Help us, God. Save us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, my name's Dave. I'm one of the pastors at Sedaris. If you're new, just thanks for being with us. We, we hope you do find the presence of God here. That's always when someone asks me, well, why should I be a part of Sedaris? I said, I think God shows up here. I think his spirit dwells in this place in a unique way, and that's what we're about. And actually, that's what this psalm series, so every summer we spend a little bit of time in the psalms. We call it the summer of psalms, so hopefully after a decade or so, we'll have made our way through most of the psalms, and we'll just keep knocking them off one by one. We kind of jump around. But... Um, Every year we also try to kind of find a theme within the psalms. So this year's theme is finding the presence of God again. And how do the psalms help us do that? So um, just briefly before I get into that, um, I do want to uh, take us back to a, psalm we, or a sermon we preached in the book of Exodus and the reason I want to bring us back is I was reminded, I was guest preaching at one of our sister churches, Central Community Church, it's in the Central District, and um, uh, one, be praying for them, they're very similar in age to us, about six years old as a church, and Jeff Neuenschwander and I are close friends, and uh, they're just experiencing all the things that we've experienced over this year, and um, be praying for them, but, but it was so good to be with them and see God bringing life back into that place like he is here at Sedaris after such uh, a hard, long 18 months. And, um, and so Jeff said, well, go ahead and preach something uh, that you just recently preached. And uh, I said, well, we just finished a very long series in the book of Exodus. And he said, I'll pick something from there. And I said, okay, I thought about it, I prayed about it, I read through some of my old notes. And I said, Jeff, I think I want to preach on uh, the worship of the golden calf. <laughs> and uh, if you know that story or remember that. Intense. I mean, this is not a great guest preaching service to basically tell everybody that they're prone to wander into idolatry. But that's what I did because I'm Dave and, and uh, I just say what God puts on my heart. So that's what he put on my heart. I preach that sermon. Um, but I, just thinking about this idea of finding God's presence again after, I think many, if you're like me, where are you, God? Maybe you've been saying the last year. It's hard to connect with God, all the anxiety and everything pressing in on us, all the distraction, all, all the things. It might be hard for you to find. How do we find them again? And I think one of the ways, or one of the things that we need to do, that I just want, this is sort of like a side note that, that I was reminded of last week, re-preaching that uh, service is, what are the things that are distracting us from God's presence? And obviously, the worship of an idol or a golden calf as the Israelites did, is a distraction. So it's not only that you have to do the things to find God's presence, but you also have to stop doing the things that distract from finding the presence of God. And, and I was just reminded of that, and I just, feel, I just feel compelled, like it feels like we're entering back into uh, just kind of some of that anxiety and some of those divisive conversations and things that, that really separate us, not only from one another, but from the presence of God. 
I just feel like we're right on the cusp of that. You probably already feel it. You'd probably be watching the news and hearing. And I just wanted to remind us as we enter into the end of the summer and into the fall um, that, that I said this last week. I didn't even say this when I first preached this sermon. But to, to define what is idolatry, it's worshiping or giving your allegiance, is how I said it, giving your allegiance to something in the hopes that it will save you. And if you're giving your allegiance to anything other than Jesus Christ, it will be hard for you to find his presence again. I, I just feel compelled to just say that as, as our allegiance is being now, I think, re, they're grabbing for it again. Do you feel that? Do you feel like your allegiance is being grabbed for? Like people are saying, you know, you've wandered away and I'm going to grab you again. I feel that and I just want to tell you, if you don't fight against that and you let your allegiance be taken and you give it to something in hopes that it will save you other than Jesus Christ, you will struggle to find his presence and it'll be another 18 months. And I love this about the church. This is a people gathered together because we have a shared devotion and a shared allegiance to Jesus Christ over and above all else. He is the only person who can save us, and we know it. That's what we are as a community. So every other uh, preference that we have, so I just want to distinguish between allegiance and preference. It's not that preferences are unimportant. They're still very important. But any preference, whether it's political preference, ethnic uh, preference, cultural preference, ideological preference, social class preference, all of that still important, is superseded by our devotion and allegiance to Jesus Christ. So those other things, they don't carry much weight or much sway in what we do as a community. We don't bow to anything other than Jesus Christ. Why? Because this is a heavenly body. If you, don't, if you don't, haven't read about what the history of the name Sedaris means, it comes from the Latin root of the word the English word consider, and sideris literally means heavenly body. So we say that all the time. When you walk in these doors, when you cross that threshold, the hope is that you're getting a glimpse of what the heavenly community is like. Well, guess what? Heaven and God's kingdom come in full will not have. There will be no politics. There will be no pandemics. There will be no disease. None of it makes it through when Christ comes back to inaugurate his kingdom in full. We are a heavenly body and Sedaris because our allegiance is to Christ and him alone. So listen, I'm not saying all this other stuff and these things grabbing for our attention, our allegiance aren't important. We've got to think about these things and be good citizens. We're both a citizen of heaven first, but also a citizen of this city and this nation. But just don't let yourself forget what we are. This is unique and special. And if we stop being unique and special, when others, and maybe you're like this, you're not yet a Christian, when you come in and peer in, if you see that same type of division and cattiness and fighting amongst us, we're not witnessing to God's kingdom. Full stop. (laughs) And no. That's what God put on my heart, just to share as we... And here's the thing to remember. This isn't unrelated from our text, by the way. It's always pulling at us. The mud, the mire, the darkness. It's always pulling at us. So if you kind of thought like, okay, we're through it. I think we all felt that a little bit like, okay, good. Now we can just go back. We got rid of one politician. Now we'll move on. And No. All politicians, okay? Listen, the mud and the muck, it doesn't go away. Save for Jesus, come and set up his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Just just know that. And so how do we find God's presence then in the midst of it? Psalm 69 is going to help us to do that. It's going to teach us some principle of how we might find God's presence. So you let Ryan preach for two weeks and then, you know, the preaching stand goes way low. What's the deal? 
How can we find it? Where can we find it? The Psalms, all of them help us. And what's interesting, even this Psalm that Gregor so beautifully read for us, this Psalm that's full of angst and darkness and grief and lament, God's there too. So let's take a look at that. Let's take a look at that. So we're in Jesus' songbook, which is the Psalms, and we are learning about how to find his presence. Now, fear always acts as a barrier to experiencing God's presence. So I'm gonna, the way I'm going to structure my sermon here is I'm going to walk you through three particular fears or do not be afraids that will help you re-engage with the presence of God. Okay? Three, do not be afraid. So number one, do not be afraid to grieve and lament, which is to say, don't fear the mud. Number two, do not be afraid to get angry, which is to say, don't fear the Pollyanna Christians, the nice guy Christians, those who would say you should never get angry. Number three, do not be afraid to praise again, which is to say, don't fear God's critics. So I'm going to pack each of these, but that's where we're going to go so you can track with me, all right? So number one, do not be afraid to grieve and lament. Here's the deal. I said this in my email. If you just looked up like the top 150 popular Christian songs that are sung around America, what you'd find is approximately 0% of them are songs of lament, which is to say we're bad at this. We forget that this is 70% of the book of Psalms. (laughs) So Jesus' songbook... 70% is lamenting, and we're terrible at it. We have to enter back into truly grieving and lamenting the mud, the darkness, and the brokenness of this world. That's a part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So let's read verses 1 to 8 again. Psalm 69. Save me, God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. Not just I'm weary of the world. I'm weary because I've been crying so much. I'm weary of my weariness. My throat is parched. I've cried out so much, God, I can't even cry out anymore. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. Where are you? More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. So big part of this you'll see is he's got some enemies. He's got some slanderers. He's got some insulters. You hear the word reproach over and over again, which just means scorn and insult, mockery. More than the the hair on my head are those who hate me. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal, must I now restore? I mean, I didn't even cause that problem, and now I'm supposed to fix it. Oh, God... You know my folly, the wrongs that I have done. They are not hidden from you. What's he saying? He's saying, listen, I'm not acting as if I'm perfect. I know my folly. And God, you know it. You see all. I'm not pretending here. I'm not pretending to be perfect. I never said that. Yet, my enemies, my critics, they come after me. This psalm is attributed to King David. It's important to say, very early on, King David is the one whom God said was the man after his own heart. Meaning what? Meaning he got it. (laughs) Like he was very close to God. This is the way he prays. It's important to remember. Because we're going to read some things here and you're going to be like, I didn't think we were supposed to say those kind of things as Christians, as people of God. But this is the man after God's own heart. This is a man who got it, but he knows he's imperfect. He's the chief repenter in the Old Testament. 
because he's the chief sinner as well. Okay, here we go. You know my folly, God. I'm not hiding that from you. Verse 6. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me. Oh, Lord, God of hosts. We'll come back to this. He's basically saying, like, I don't want people to lose their faith because they see what's happened to me and they see what happens to those that go after your own heart, God. I don't want people to lose it. I care about people. I care about them finding you and being near to you. And if they see what's happened to me, I'm worried that they're going to turn from you, not want to follow you. Let those who seek you be brought, or let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. I mean, this is bad. I mean, you feel it, don't you? Do you feel it? There's deep grief here. Look, let's just fast forward here to verse 15. What does he say? Let not the flood sweep over me, or the deep swallow me up, or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord. You feel it? God, where are you? Like, like, like to him, it really feels like he might be swallowed up by this despair, by this grief, by this depression. Like he's not sure if he's going to make it. These are real words spoken by a man truly at the edge. And this is in the word of God. God wanted us to read this. Think about it. We're sitting... 3,000 years later, reading this. God wanted us to know this is a way to pray. This is a way to talk to him. So we should not avoid it. Why not? Well, why not avoid the mud? Why not avoid the grief? Why not just pass through it with positivity? Well, the answer is because it's unavoidable. Whether you admit you got mud on your face or not, you got mud on your face. And if you avoid it or close your eyes in it, you're going to miss the other thing that's in it. What's the other thing that's in it? Jesus Christ. He's waiting for you there. He's prepared this for you. He's not unaware that you would go through this or that or the other. He knows. He's allowed you to enter into it because he wants to meet you in the middle of it. So why not avoid it? Because Jesus is there. God's presence is there. And if you avoid it, and you don't acknowledge it, and you close your eyes, you'll miss him. And what's the kingdom of God? It's being in the presence of Jesus. That's what it is. So if he's over there, and you're running from there, you're going to miss him. You say, but at least I won't have the grief, at least I won't have the lament, at least I won't have the pain. Yeah, but you don't get God. <laughs> you see that? We've got to learn to grieve and lament we have a model for it here. What it does, if you choose to enter into it, one of the things it does, it teaches you how to pray simply. I mean, I can remember in times of my life where I get to this point, and I literally don't know the words. And I'm just like David here in the Psalms. I don't have much. I just say, save me. I remember one time just sitting in my car, not knowing how to move forward, not knowing what to do next, feeling like my life as I know it is over. And I just remember, just put, I, only words I could say were just, help! Help! And I just kept saying it over and over again. I'll tell you what, God met me in that. I didn't have to have fancy words or say the right thing to invoke his prayer. He's already there. And finally, I'm acknowledging I can't do it. Praise be to the mud. Let me tell you a story. Um, my family grew up competitive water skiing. I don't know why it's not in the Olympics. It's, a, it's one of those sports that should be because nobody knows about it. It's a great sport. But basically, uh, around Washington and, and other regions, we would travel on weekends and in the summer, and we'd go to these water ski tournaments. And uh, there's one lake called Maytown. And the way a lot of these are man-made ski lakes, so they just find like a plot of land and then just start digging. Well, um, one of these lakes was called Maytown. And the way the lakes, they're long, skinny lakes with two islands. And only one boat goes at a time because there's like a slalom course that 
competitive water skiers, there's six buoys, you got to go around them, and then the boat turns around and you do it again, okay? So they're long and skinny, like maybe a mile, probably like half a mile long, and, and then only like 50 yards to 75 yards wide, meaning like you could throw a rock across it, okay? So I'm trying, i got to set this up for you because you're going to be like, you're not going to understand. It's not, not as big as Green Lake, okay? But it's, it's almost like the size of a track. Think of like a, like a track and field. Think of, think of a track, okay? So it's not very far across. And um, I was probably like eight years old, something like, like, like that. And there, there was a, a, a guy I used to water ski with, a friend of mine named Jeff Ward. Jeff, real rambunctious fellow. And um, because this lake had been hand dug out, there were some parts on the other side of the lake, not where people hung out, but on the other side, where there was like some mud that was like quicksand. And our parents told us, Whatever you do, don't go over to that side of the lake. You will get stuck in the mud, and it's bad. So, of course, what Jeff said is, hey, let's go to the other side of the lake. That sounds like fun, <laughs> okay? And so he takes me over there. It's me and my older sister, Kim, um, and Jeff, and we get to this spot that's clearly like the spot like you don't go, and you can see it's like weird, like quicksandy. And Jeff, he's a little bit older than me, says, hey, Dave, we should test out how true our, truthful our parents were being. Why don't you step into this mud and see what happens? So, you know, I was the youngest of the bunch. I said, sure, he would not lead me into danger. So I step in. And um, all of a sudden, I begin to sink. <laughs> Very slowly, like, like super slow. And my sister and Jeff, they start trying to pull me out and they can't pull me out. Like they literally can't. And they, you, I can see the panic on my sister's eyes. They're pulling, they're pulling. Every time they pull, you know how quicksand works, I'm going deeper and deeper. So I'm like down to my knees at this point, starting to freak out. They finally realize it's either like, admit that we've broken the rules and ask, call for help, or <laughs> Dave dies. <laughs> That's like, like the two options. <laughs> And, you know, they thought about it for a bit, right? Because, like, we're sinful, and we don't want to admit we're wrong. So they, like, waited, and I'm like, guys, help, you know? Anyhow, they begin to holler for help. Well, like I said, like, it's only, like, 75 yards across this lake, and I see when they cry for help, I mean, and, and the parents could tell, I see my dad. And it's, like, a split second, and he flies out of the starting gates and begins to run what would probably be equivalent to, like, a 400-meter dash. I swear to God, he probably could have won the Olympics. I've never seen a human being move that fast. Now, here's the funniest part. All the other parents whose son wasn't drowning in the mud, they did the rational thing. They got in a boat, because it's a water ski lake, <laughs> and they drove 75 feet across, and they beat my dad there. Well, kind of. I think he actually might have beat him. What's the point? My dad gets there. He pulls me out. My shoes and my socks don't make it. They're still buried in the mud at Maytown Lake. But my dad rescues me. And I'll tell you what. I mean, I get emotional just thinking about it. I learned something about my dad that day. I learned something about his love for me that I would not have known had I not gone into that mud. I, didn't, I don't think I realized how much he loved me until that moment when I saw him do superhuman things. Yes, it was an irrational love. It was incomprehensible. He probably wouldn't have done it the same the next time. But it was so real and authentic and true, and I only could have seen it had I been stuck in the mud. That's why we don't avoid it. That's why we don't avoid the grief and lament, because if we do, we'll miss something about our God who meets us in the middle of it. His love is incomprehensible, even irrational at times. We'll get to that at the end of the sermon. So don't avoid it. Go into it like David does here. Grief and lament they're essential parts of the Christian life because only in those moments will you learn certain things about God that you otherwise wouldn't know. Caveat, don't be like Jeff Ward. Don't seek out the mud. 
The mud will find you. You don't need to go run to the deepest, darkest things just so that God can show up and rescue you. It will find you. Only take as much of it as God has prepared for you. Don't love it and sit in it. When he wants to bring you out of it, come out of it. When you're feeling deep, dark depression, don't love that deep, dark depression. Let God rescue you from it. But you'll probably be back. That's okay. But don't seek it out. God will let you go there if he's trying to teach you something about himself. Number two, do not be afraid to get angry. Sometimes we think it's unchristian. Well, it's very human. And every Christian is a human. Never forget that. Anger is a part of human emotion. So let's see King David. He's feeling this, king, uh, this deep grief. Let's keep reading, starting in verse 9. He says, For the zeal for your house, God, has consumed me. What's he saying? He's saying, I love you, God. I love you. And yet, the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. They began to make fun of me for being pious and contrite. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. Sackcloth was just a sign that you're grieving and lamenting. And then people would insult him and make fun of him for that. I am the talk of those who sit at the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. Think about that. He's literally becoming a drinking song because of his devotion to God. But as for you, or sorry, but as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord. At an acceptable time, O God. He's saying, I'm going to be patient. In the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Deliver me from the sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies in the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me, or the deep swallow me up, or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord. For your steadfast love is good according to your abundant mercy. Turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am distressed. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul. So he knows God draws near to those who are in distress and grief. Redeem me. Ransom me because of my enemies. If you read through the Psalms, how does he know this? This ain't the first time David's gone to the deep mire, okay? He says, you know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I look for pity, but there is none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Okay. So what's about to come next is some intense anger. But you've got to see why. You've got to see why. Imagine that. They're making drinking songs about the king, about how pious he is, how he humbles himself, how he laments and humbles himself in sackcloth as the king. And they make songs making fun of him. They try to poison him. So look what he says. Look what his human response is. 22, let their own table become to them a snare, and when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see, and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them, and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents, for they persecute him whom you have struck down. He's basically saying, they're coming after your guy, God the one that you humbled and then made king. They're coming after you, God, is what he's saying. He's saying, God, get on my side. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let now, okay, now you think it's bad. He's just asking for the physical life to be taken away. But he goes further. He says, let them be blotted out from the book of the living. And we talked about the Exodus, the book of life, of eternal life. He says, I don't even want them in that. What's he saying? Go to hell. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. Go to hell. You ever felt that way? You ever felt that way? You're a liar. <laughs> if you haven't, you're like, I hope that person does not find Jesus, does not repent, does not get added to the book of life. That's where David's at. And it's understandable, isn't it? Like, I get that in my humanity. 
People were coming at me, making drinking songs about me, making fun of me for following the Lord. I get that. I get that. Anger towards your enemies is often warranted, and even if it's exaggerated, even if you're making much of nothing, you can find the presence of God in your anger. So you don't need to avoid that. You don't need to be afraid of getting angry. Here's why. Two observations. One, it's in the Bible. <laughs> like God is giving us an example. He's like, he could have, you know, there's probably things that David wrote that didn't make it in. Like that ain't from, I don't want people to know about that. God wanted you to know about this. Why did he want you to know about this? He wants you to know about his mercy. So it's not like you say, well, doesn't Jesus teach to love your enemies? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But God understands why you hate them. And, and by the way, love is not a feeling, it's an action. So God puts this in here so that you know that there's no amount of anger or venom or viciousness that you can have towards your enemies that disqualifies you from his kingdom or his service. Because the man after his own art, he had some, some, some venom in these words, didn't he? God gets it, he understands he wants you to know. I mean, think about the book of Job, which is a very long book about Job complaining to God and because and, and, God's allowed some muck and mire to get in his life. And the whole point, God says, is because the accuser, Satan, thinks that you'll turn from me. So I'm going to let this happen to you. And even though many of the prayers of Job are prayers that you would say, this is pretty irreverent towards God, this is a bit disrespectful, Job, God says, no, look, this is good. What? Yes. Satan says. But, but look at the things he's saying to you. But God says, yeah, but he's talking to me. <laughs> you see that? But he's still praying. He hasn't left me. He knows I'm still there. You see that? So the point is not that our prayers are perfect or that there's nothing in this psalm that's like, like I'm not saying that pray this psalm over your enemies over and over again. What I'm saying is, that you turn to God and you pray to him and you bring all of it to him. Even the anger, even the venom. Like he's in that. He meets you there and he ministers to your soul. But if you like try to clean yourself up and make yourself perfect before you come to him in prayer, you're not even bringing your real self. You're bringing some facade. God's like, I don't want the facade, I want the real deal. And you're pissed. You're angry. I understand. I'm going to meet you in the middle of it. Just don't stop praying to me. Don't wait for your anger to subside before you come to me. Come to me in the anger because then I can transform your heart to be that like Christ. Christ who on the cross prays, God, they do not know what they do. Forgive them. Only if you bring it to him can he transform your heart. He meets you in the anger. You want to encounter his presence? Bring all your anger to him. This is the first observation. <laughs> God wants us to see this. The second is that God absorbs all those words of anger so that they don't escalate into acts of anger. Like if you don't let God carry that, it will, over time, erode your soul until you begin to act on those feelings. So like he prays, God, bring your punishment. Now if he didn't take that to God, eventually he's going to take punishment into his own hands. That's how it always works. But you give it to him, and you trust him that he will take care of it in his time, then it doesn't lead to acts of anger. But he needs to carry it for you. So here's the principle. If you turn, uh, we'll have it on the screen, but Romans chapter 12 helps us see this in the New, New Testament. Other places help us see it as well. But Romans chapter 12 is just one example of that. Now, I'm going to be reading uh, down in verse 18, but first I want to show you what it says in verse 9, it says, let love be genuine. Then it says this, abhor what is evil. It's the context of how this section starts. So they're not at odds. It's not either love or abhor evil. It's like both can happen at the same time. It's good to hate what is evil. Now, if you jump down to verse 18, it says this, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, and he's quoting the Old Testament now, vengeance is mine, 
I will repay, says the Lord. This is the principle. It's okay to bring to God in prayer your anger, your frustration. I think it's even okay to bring it amongst company of saints with a close friend. Ryan and I do this all the time together. It's almost like our, like our, our shared confessional of like, we're, we're mad. <laughs> like, this is hard. This last year has been full of it. Like, there are things that just frustrate us, and we get it out, and we give it to God so that we don't act upon it. Because God says, vengeance is mine. And when we let vengeance be his and we don't avenge ourselves, like King David does here, God can transform our heart to be that of the heart of Jesus. We can actually now have love for our enemy, and even though we feel like we don't want them to experience the kingdom of God, eternal life in Jesus, even though that's our feeling right now when we give that to God, then when the moment comes and they ask us, what must I do to be saved, we don't withhold from them the good news of Jesus Christ. But we got to bring our anger and not be afraid to get angry because this world is maddening. Evil is worthy of our hate. The enemies of God are enemies of ours until they become friends. So don't clean yourself up before you go to prayer. God meets you in that moment, in that moment of distress, just like in the mud. He meets you in that moment of anger, and he ministers to your soul, and he gives you more of himself, the thing that transforms us. Okay, third fear. Do not be afraid to praise God again, even after the muddy moments. Now, you hear it, don't you? Like He's like worried. He's like, God... I don't want people to turn away from you because they see what's happening to me. That when I come to you and humble myself, I actually get ridicule and scorn and reproach. Like, I'm worried about this God. So it's like, it's reasonable to think like, okay, I'm going to damper down or at least only do it privately, my praise and worship and acknowledgement of I'm following Jesus. Because when I fall into the mud, it kind of looks to people like God has let me down. And I don't want them to think God lets me down, right? You know the feeling? Like, I'll just keep it, my faith private because then God won't be dishonored if I fall into the mud. God says, no, 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 no. Look at verse 29. Look at, uh, we're back in, in the Psalms, okay? We're back in the Psalms here. And look at what happens next. Verse 29 says, but I am afflicted and in pain. Now, this is like a hinge point. So he's just said all these really negative, mean things about these people. And then he's saying like, but God, I'm saying this in my pain. Right? So you guys say some mean things. Like if you've ever been married, <laughs> you say some mean things to your spouse. But then you say, but I'm saying that in my pain. And your spouse knows it. Like, yeah, I know. I know you didn't really mean that. Like, I'm, I'm, you didn't mean that, right? <laughs> yes, I said it in my pain, he said. He says, like, I'm not going to act on that. I'm in pain. I'm afflicted. I recognize that this cursing that I've done, I would, I would never take that into my own hands. So he's recognized that. And then he says, let your salvation, O God, set me on high. Meaning like, free me from my anger, God. Free me from this anger that controls me and overwhelms me. Verse 30. And then he says this, I will praise the name of God, look at this, with a song. With a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. I will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull or horns or hooves. Meaning like, sacrifice taking a sacrifice to the temple. What's actually more pleasing, he says, is I'm going to make a song to the Lord. When the humble see it, they will be glad. Who see God, let their hearts be revived. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. See, now he's rehearsing what he knows to be true. He's like, I feel all this anger. I'm in the mud, but I know that God is a good God who hears the needy and meets them. I know this. Let heaven and earth praise him. The seas and everything that moves, let them praise. For God will save Zion. Zion is just the people of Israel, the people of God. And they'll build up the cities of Judah. He'll build the kingdom of God. And people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it. And those who love his name shall dwell in it. So he's, he's like, I know it. But he had to go through all the other steps, you see. You can't just jump over and say, but I know God is good and everything works out. you got to sink into it. That way when you come up out of it, you feel the power and the presence of God. And he gets there and he writes a song. And I love this because who else was writing songs? The drunkards that were insulting him for following God. Look at their song. 
Look at, look at their song back in verse 12. I am the talk of those who sit at the gate. The drunkards make songs about me. So they're writing songs about a human being. And David says, I'm going to write songs about an all-powerful, saving God. See the pettiness of writing songs, making fun of another human being, versus writing songs about the God, the God who saves? You feel that? This is not an accident. He's saying, they write these kind of songs. You know what? When I get through it, when God meets me in all of this despair and all this grief and all this anger, it re- reminds me. I worship a God who is above all and in all and through all and beyond all, and I'm not going to get caught up in this pettiness. I'm going to worship God. You want to go write songs about these things and criticize and be a critic of the people? I'm going to be a proclaimer of an all-powerful God. He gets it. He doesn't get drug into it unnecessarily. God brought him through it, couldn't avoid it, but then he sees God's trueness. We worship a God, people, that is far beyond any moment, any person, any king. He's above it all. And when we turn to him, he meets us there. He's like, I was here all along. I was here in the mud. I was here in the anger. And I'm here when you finally see me for who I am. And David sees. And he says, I've got to tell everybody. I'm doubling down, he says. I'm going to be even more public. I'm not going to lose hope in hoping. I'm not worried now about people seeing my mud or the next time I get in it because they're going to see that God rescued me out of it because I'm out here singing songs. Remember Barnabas and Paul in the jail cell singing and ultimately leaving the jailer or leading the jailer to Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior? It doesn't matter. You can sing praise when you see God for who he is, even if mud's still all over you. That's how you meet God in the midst, through praise. God never promised us. So he said, like, but I don't want, you know, back to this idea, I don't want God to be misrepresented. You say, listen, God never promised butterflies and bingo. He never said it would be easy. He actually said the opposite. It's going to be really hard. I'm going to let all sorts of things befall you, but don't worry. I'm going to be with you. So we need to clarify him, but we don't need to defend him. He's told us this is what it's going to be like following him. That's exactly what he said it would be. Jesus meets us even in, or especially in, tear-filled worship. So do not be afraid. Now you say, man, this is hard. (laughs) This is hard to praise God, to hope in God again after I've fallen in the mud. Yes. But we have something that David even didn't have. We have an experience. We know how far and how fast and how incomprehensible is the love of God in a way that David didn't even know. Why? Because David didn't see God come in the flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, die on a cross for our sin, be buried in the grave, sit in the grave for three days, and then rise to new life and promise the Holy Spirit to all. David didn't get to see that. We do. So we know how incomprehensible the love of God is. So turn with me very quickly to Philippians chapter 2. How incomprehensible, how irrational almost is the love of God? Look at this. Philippians chapter 2, verse, I'm I'm going to start in in, in verse 5. Have this mind among you, among yourselves, among the people of God, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Meaning, we get this new mind because Christ Jesus is this way. Jesus, who... Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Which is to say, he let it go. He had it. He could have stayed there. He could have stayed out of the mud. He could have stayed out of humanity's way. And all the carnage and brokenness that we've created. He could have stayed. He had it, but he let go. He he emptied himself, verse 7, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And what is death on the cross? The most humiliating form of death, being hung on a tree, which the Old Testament said, anybody hung on a tree is the most cursed among men. He took on that insult. He took on that scorn. He sat there as the Roman soldiers mocked him. Oh, you're the king of the Jews? And they spit on him and they said, save yourself. He took it all on. He took on flesh and the brokenness and the mud of humanity. He took it all on himself for us. So like my dad's rescue of me at Maytown, man, that was impressive. 
That's nothing compared to what God did. God didn't just come and pull us out of the mud. God ran around the lake, and you know what he did? He jumped in the mud. You, there's a great piece of art that you may have seen that, that models this so perfectly. Have you, you know what I'm talking about? It's a great piece of, of classic art. It's called The Princess Bride. Classic art. And there's a scene with, with, a, with a sand pit. <laughs> the beautiful love interest of the protagonist falls into the mud. Buttercup. And she sinks all the way down. And he doesn't just throw his arm in there. He doesn't just freak out and say, what do I do? What does he do? He dives headfirst into the sand pit. And there's quite a moment of waiting where you're unsure if they'll come out. But he dives all the way in. He sinks all the way down. Three days in the grave, the God of the universe sat. Separated from the Father. The Son and the Father, who eternally had been united, were separated as Jesus waded deep all the way down into the mud, scriptures tell us, until he rose again victoriously. But he went all the way down. He experienced ultimate shame, ultimate insult. People to this day use his name as a curse word. They write drinking songs about him and make fun of people who follow him. But he took that all on himself, all of it. He absorbed it all out of his deep, abiding love for you and I and anyone that would turn to him. That's the gospel. That's the love of God. And we only recognize it if we enter into the deep brokenness of our world, of our own heart, of our own anger, and we allow God to bring us up out of that to new life modeled after his son Jesus.